not everything in the military is applicable to the civilian world. But the things that are, why would we not spread that as far and as wide as possible to strengthen individuals that can then hopefully strengthen their community, which can then hopefully strengthen the country? It's, to me, it seems utterly ridiculous to not be that person that's trying to help out as much as possible and spread that knowledge because it was passed on to me from the generation before me. Why would I withhold that from other people? What's up, everybody? Welcome to Ironclad's Built for More. Today's episode is special, okay? This is what the whole idea of the podcast was built on. It was taking these long-form conversations that we have on set that get cut down into three to five minutes for these videos, and we wanted to bring it to you to watch, okay? So this is a conversation with Andy Stump for Blackhawks No Fail Episode 2. You're going to hear everything from his story about why he got started in the teams, what drew him there, his journey, his work up, all the way until he got shot. You're going to hear about that. You're going to hear about what happened after that, his recovery, and how he got to where he is today. And not only that, but you're going to get his really unique take on failure, okay? It's something that inspired me. And after that conversation, we knew that we had to bring it to you guys. So once you watch this episode, make sure you watch Blackhawks episode two, No Fail, featuring Andy Stumpf, okay? Because it's something that's going to make you want to go climb a mountain. Ladies and gentlemen, enjoy our conversation with Andy Stumpf. So, um, all right, let's start from the top. Um, what drew you to wanting to join the team? God damn it. I hate this question. And I hate this question because I don't have a good answer, as most guys that I worked with didn't have a good one either. So I was born and raised in Santa Cruz, California, uh, basically right in the middle of the state, Ocean Town. And Santa Cruz, specifically inside of California, leans pretty far to the left, which you know, I could care less if people are on the right or left. Came from a military brat family. My mom's side of the house was Army, both mom and dad. My dad's side of the house was Navy. My dad's father specifically, his brother, my dad's father's father, all on the Navy side of the house. My dad's experience in Vietnam was not great. He had some very serious residual issues that we actually moved to Montana when I was very young so he could seek some pretty intensive counseling uh, through the VA down in Missoula. And actually he worked uh, with a lot of the native population, like sweat lodges, some like teepee rituals. It was pretty crazy. But we came here specifically to do that because my mom said either you deal with your issues or I'm out of here and I'm taking the kids. We went back to Santa Cruz and I remember I was working for my dad. He owned a masonry company. And I started working for him when I was 10 for $1.50 an hour, which I still have a problem with. And he still tells me I was only worth 75 cents. So I was actually getting paid double per hour which has nothing to do with what we're talking about. But we were driving back. Uh, there's a neighboring town called Aptos, or Aptos, depending on how you want to enunciate it. And he very rarely talked about his military service. I was aware that he was in the Navy. Uh, and he very, very rarely talked about Vietnam. And I don't remember why it came up, but he was talking about, he was a 50 cal gunner on the first series of patrol boats in Vietnam that used jacuzzi jets instead of propellers. They were the Mark 1s. And to fast forward a little bit, when I was in the community, we were operating on the Mark 5s. So there was a weird like lineage in connection there. And he was mentioning working with SEALs. 
peripheral to what he was doing, that he had worked with them, that they would use them as the insertion or extraction platform. And it just seemed interesting. And I remember asking what they were and he made a con I can't remember the exact comment, but it was something along the lines of, he explained and described, it was either a, probably a combination of the exclusive nature of the community, uh, the difficulty involved in the training, the type of jobs, that, at least that they were doing in the Vietnam era because things have evolved since then naturally. And it just, it, it hooked me, the concept of that hooked me. So even from that moment going forward, I had this insatiable desire for at least knowledge. That's what it started with, was knowledge. So I went to the library uh, and I found this book that most SEALs, at least pre-9-11, had read, which was Men with Green Faces. And it just kind of laid out what they were doing in Vietnam. And again, the exclusivity of it, the difficulty of it, the, you know, the odds not being in your favor, making it through the selection process. And I think all of those things had an interest to me. But once I heard about it, it just became a gravitational pull. And it's all I could really think about. So as I was working my way through high school, I was watching my friends who were taking the SATs or they were applying to colleges and... I had no interest in doing it. I had one route that I wanted to go. So my junior year of high school, I brought home a Navy recruiter. Full disclosure, my parents knew that I was going to the Navy recruiter to talk to her. It was a woman. Um, they didn't know I was going to bring her back to the house with a permission slip that said, hey, you're going to sign this so your, your son can enlist in the military. Um, and to their credit, even though they both, I would say, on my mom's side of the house, the experience was not great due to the, uh, her parents were both alcoholics because in 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, let's just say alcohol was a large portion of the military machine. And on my dad's side of the house, his experiences were in his own firsthand encounters in Vietnam. To their credit, neither of them voiced anything other than support for me. And I don't think they signed it that day, but very soon thereafter, they signed on the dotted line so I could actually enlist in the Navy when I was a junior in high school. And that's what I was focusing on, obviously playing sports and doing grades and schoolwork to a degree that I wasn't getting in trouble. But as soon as I could get started on the pipeline towards the SEAL community, that's, that's exactly what I did. So I left a few days after high school, straight into boot camp, um, take the screening test in boot camp, which was very simple, got a slot at a school that would allow me to go to BUDS and was able to systematically approach and just attack the pipeline. It was, for me, very fortunate. I didn't realize how many people don't have the chance to do that or get hurt or the timing just doesn't work itself out. And then I get into the community and I was surrounded by people who had exactly the same experience growing up. It was a gravitational pull that they had a hard time articulating. I mean, I'm 42 now and I still have a hard time explaining or understanding why I wanted to go down that path. I have a better vocabulary than I did when I was 11, but I still struggle to describe why I wanted to go that direction. That's interesting. What were some of the immediate lessons learned? You know, you kind of go in, I'm sure your head is probably like, you, you, you're used to athletics, you're used to just conquering things and approaching things. What's your, what was some of the big wake-up calls as you get in there? I think the biggest wake-up call was that the volume of knowledge and skills that you have to train on is almost overwhelming. Uh, if you look at almost any type of visual media, a TV show or a movie, it is impossible to unpack the actual requirements of that occupation because most of the time, and I get why, right? If you want butts and seats, you need to have things whizzing by your head and things blowing up. 
They never showed the 72-hour planning process or PowerPoint or the arguments that we have over that stuff. But to get to a point where things are whizzing by your head, you have to have an incredible amount of knowledge in navigation, communications, marksmanship, uh, terrain navigation and study, weather stuff. Like it goes on and on and on and on. And your entire career is spent chasing currency. People think that we're really good at one thing, and the reality is, is you're a master of none and a jack of all trades. So I would say you're at an 80% currency at any one point in time in your career. You'll go out to the desert and you'll tune up all of your driving skills, your land navigation skills, your small unit tactics, and then you come out of that and you go right into a block of diving for two weeks. And that more you start diving, the more your skills go down in the desert. And then you come out of that and you go to a three week air block where you start jumping. And then by the time you're done with that, you're like, how do I, what were the tactics that we we're using in the desert? Then you go into medical training, then communication, then zodiacs over the beach, over the horizon. And then there's a deployment on the horizon. So you start training specifically for that, and you're just managing this level of currency. So the biggest surprise was just the, the, the knowledge base that was required and the realization that you're not going to be able to master any one portion of that. You can dive as deep as you want to, but if you do that, your skill set in so many other areas is going to be deficient, and you'll actually probably get excluded from some things unless they need just that specialty. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, so you take that mindset and you go to the top level, right? Can you talk about when you get there, are you... What, what do you mean by top level? You, you, you go all the way to damn neck, right? Okay. Right. So talk about like you get there. What is that like in your mind? Do you feel like you're the best? Do you feel like you're untouchable? Can you kind of talk about So I get, I get asked this one a lot. What's the difference between... Um, what people will call conventional special operations forces, and let's say that's at a SOCOM level or a tier two, tier three unit, and then JSOC elements, which would be the tier one elements. And most people recognize that as development group in CAG, so the Army and the Navy side of the house, or flip-flop that, the Navy and the Army side of the house. It is a community of people that still comes from the broader special operations pool. CAG pulls from all four branches. Development group is specifically from the Navy. And when I got there, the cool thing about that command to me was that they removed some of the burden of being a jack of all trade and they allowed you to focus much more on the direct action aspect of the job. There was a multi, multi-million dollar, multi-story kill house that was walking distance from where I stored my gear. The walls were movable, they were ballistic, we could control the temperature, we could control the lighting, we had a high bay you could drive vehicles into, you could land helicopters on top of it. And that doesn't exist anywhere in the conventional special operations world that I'm aware of. And instead of having to be a master on the radio, we would bring in CCT guys from the Air Force. Instead of having to be a master or attempt to be a master on the medical side of the house, we would bring in PJs. So it would allow you, it doesn't mean that you can ignore those skills, but it means we had specialists with us. So it, you could narrowly focus on what it is you were actually training for, which again was that direct action. Fix, you know, find a target, fix it in location, and then get to a place where you can enter the threshold of that door. And we became extremely good at that. And having said that, we were extremely good at that and we sucked at diving. So it's this pro and con. Right. So that command is amazing at doing a very small number of things. But if it came to a broader 
requirement from a battle space commander, they might actually be better off going to a unit that has more of a broader approach. So again, it's pros and cons. The knife cuts both directions. When you get in your rhythm and you're, you're, you're with that command, are you, what, can you explain your mindset on a daily? When you, uh, you know, you talked about, and we'll get into this deeper about the shift after your injury, but mm -hmm. like, can you talk about right now? You're in your rhythm, you're, you're, you're making it happen, you have all these resources. Yeah, it was right? awesome. So budget wasn't ever an issue. Um, assets were never an issue. Gear was never an issue. We could look at, um, you, well, I mean, development group, Naval Special Warfare Development Group. People think about basically Neptune Spear, right? The direct action portion of it. The command actually exists to test, evaluate, and permeate equipment throughout at least the Na Naval Special Warfare umbrella. So we had the ability to deviate from the ANU, which is the authorized for naval use. If you go to a conventional SEAL team, you cannot just go and buy an off-the-shelf ballistic helmet. It has to come through the Navy's pipeline of sourcing and testing and all the things that go into that. And that takes years. At development group, we could basically go and say, I want to try this. I want to try that inside of some parameters. Like you can't just go take crazy weaponry overseas. We're still, you know, governed by the Geneva Convention and the UCMJ and all that stuff. But it allowed us to get the best gear from wherever we wanted to. So again, you're, you're burden sharing things that might be taking up your headspace. And really, it was a constant and consistent refinement of how can I become more efficient and effective on target? How do I get myself to the threshold of the door and what's the most efficient way to open it? What are the best tactics? What, did, what is it that we were seeing? And it was just, it was a beautiful thing to be able to focus just on that, just on the four walls that are going to happen behind the threshold of this door. And it was, it was pretty consuming from a thought process perspective, but you get so good at it you'll find yourself checking into hotel rooms and that's all you're thinking of is, you know, and to this day, I look at a door and the first thing I do is I determine whether or not it's an inward or an outward opening door, you know, based on whether or not I can see the hinges. And I started doing that and thinking about that, not when I was at a conventional team, but when I was at development group, because that was my life. That was sometimes the difference between life and death. How do I get inside of this door, an internal door, an external door? It was a, it was a beautiful thing because it was so narrowly focused that it just, I, the best way I can describe it is a lot of the other pressures fell away. Yeah, and, and that, was, that was good, man, because I'm gonna come back to that. But before we go to that, can you talk about the night you got shot? We talked about yeah. that, right? So you're in this rhythm, you're going out. Yep. You, you this and the point, rhythm that I've been talking about is just on, like that's a workup. Deployment rhythm is completely different because there's no more practice. There's no kill house overseas that you're gonna go and practice doing entries on. So you have to get to your apex before you go overseas and then you're actually battling currency. You will get less current as you are overseas because we could go and do six hours in the kill house, which we would legitimately do. That's a lot of runs. Yeah. And then you have people there hanging doors, resetting targets. We're debriefing every single run. We're talking about individual movement, shot placement on every single target, shoot, no shoot targets, turning the lights on and off, putting on the chem bio gear, gas mask, like it was crazy. None of that exists overseas. So you get to your apex and then you get overseas. You got to, you don't have to, but most people will switch to like a vampire cycle where you're basically sleeping during the day. You wake up shortly before the sun goes down. And I was junior at the command uh, rank wise and experience wise. So I didn't have much role, if any, in the planning process. So I would get up, go work out, start getting my gear together. And I would roll into the talk and look at what we were going to go 
prosecute that night. And people would be planning. And it literally, that cycle that I would get on is I'd wake up, work out, figure out what we're going to do, go eat, get my stuff on, and go bang targets all night long, and then come back and repeat the entire cycle. But you're actually getting less current as that goes on. So as you're doing that, do you feel, or do you, is there a point where you feel like it's second nature when you're going out? Are you, is it the same feelings that are rising every time? Or are you in this rhythm where you're just getting after it and you're not thinking about the consequence? Or are you always thinking about that? I think if you get to a place where you're not thinking about the consequences, you need to hang up the spurs. It's, uh, and I can only speak for myself. I have heard some of the people that I worked with describe, they're like, I never felt any fear. And if they would have verbalized that to me while we were working together, I probably would have had a problem with that. Um, fear is a very natural mechanism of your body and it's trying to tell you to pay attention and in those environments where your life could depend on the decisions that you make I think it's a really good time to pay attention and also on a nightly basis most of the time we were making decisions that would terminate in the life or death of another human being and I don't think that that should ever be undervalued that decision it should never get to a place where you don't care about that decision and I don't think you should ever arrive at a place where those decisions don't weigh on you uh, to some degree. They don't have to haunt you for the rest of your life, but you should respect the fact that you are in a place entrusted and enabled to make those decisions that can change and impact generations of people in countries that you'll never go back to. So I never got to a point where the things that happened on target felt routine, but I definitely had a routine of, you know, we'd have a cubby, and I would always lay out my gear exactly the same way and put it on the same way so I knew that I have everything, right? I didn't want to create a new system of putting my stuff on and then be like scratching my head on the helicopter like, did I remember those extra batteries? Because I've done that and it sucks. So there are aspects that you can make very rote and very routine, but when it comes to approaching a structure, climbing over a wall, coming around a corner when you can hear people on the other side of a door inside of a structure that you know that you're going to go into, it, for me, and again, I can only speak for me, it never got to a place where those things didn't register with me, where it didn't have an emotional and physical response and impact. And I'm glad that it didn't because it forced me to constantly pay attention. So let's talk about the op that you went mm -hmm. on. Uh, so break it down, kind of paint the picture for me. So we had been there in Iraq for about just under 30 days. And I was on a routine that was very similar to what I had just described. I would sleep all day long, I would get up, I would eat a little bit, I would go work out, I would walk in to see what was going on for that night. And at that point uh, in 2005, we were largely chasing electronic devices. So we would just kind of look at what was on the network. They would start planning and you know, putting together the bigger operational plan for the night. Sometimes it would be one target with multiple follow-ons. I mean, so most of the nights we would go out as the sun was setting and we would come back as the sun was coming up. So we had a full cycle of darkness to work. And I'd get all my stuff on, we'd come into the brief, I'd throw on my little football sleeve for you know the little flip up that had who we were looking for, the electronic signature that we were looking for, you know, height, weight, right. always seemed to be relatively the same. And the picture was often like a black silhouette. I was like, okay, we got some good intel on this guy. Um, but that's just, that's just where we were at that point. And we would just go out and we'd do it night after night after night. And the night that um, the night that I got shot, I wish I could say, well, actually, I don't wish I could say. Um, it wasn't any different than any of the other nights. I had no indication leading up to that event that it was going to go any differently than it had gone the nights before. We were looking for a kidnapping cell. 
Um, we had gathered some intelligence that there was a cell of people that was going to try to kidnap the children of political figures in Iraq. And we drove to this particular target and walked through a field and we're walking through an urban area. And we were seen by somebody farther down the road, so we pursued them into their house. And in doing so, we made some noise. I believe a door was shotgun breached. We came back around, we were retracing our steps because we were looking for an electronic device, so we were trying to fix that device in place. And I remember as we were coming back, I was walking point at the time, so I was in the front of the patrol. We, walked, we pursued that individual down an alley and we walked back the same alley. And we sat up on the corner of that alley where there was a structure with a wall and a courtyard and then structure was inside of that. And I remember when we walked past it the first time, the internal lights were all off because under night vision goggles, any white light, it just, it's like, it's a flare going off in your night vision goggles. As we came back, the lights in the structure were on, whereas when we came by the first time they were off. We set up a ladder and I climbed up the ladder and I just was, yeah, I don't like having my back to things that I can't see. I didn't know we were actually gonna go into that structure. And I was just trying to make sure that I could see a little bit, give us some, uh, some offset and some distance. And I ended up looking through a window for almost 10 minutes. So I actually was looking at the structure for a really long time. And I was going back and forth between looking through my nods, which they get very washed out when there's an ambient light source. So I would just kind of lift my head up and look underneath them and put them back down. And I, I stared at the front of that building for 10 minutes. And then we got the notification that, hey, this is actually the building that we're looking for. So the element split off and we isolate, uh, isolated and contained the target. I got the go ahead to go over the wall. And I, lay, I jumped over the wall and it was a courtyard and then the building was offset by about maybe 20 feet. And I, when I jumped off the ladder, I was in the shadows. And I remember having the thought in my head that I was just gonna go right up to the door and I was gonna hold security for the breach team. And something told me in the back of my head, like, just stay here in the shadows, just for a minute. And the target, it, was a, it wasn't complex by any stretch. There was an open window, a door, and then much like an American house, it almost seemed like a garage was jutting out. And then, then instead of a garage door though, there was another window. And I was just gonna go to the corner and hold security for the breach team, but I didn't want to turn my back to the window where the garage door would be. So I waited until there was a couple of us in the courtyard, started walking towards that corner that I was gonna post up on. And the second that I took my eyes off of the window that was illuminated, literally as I swung my head to look into the window that was not illuminated, I heard rounds starting to crack off from my left hand uh, shoulder. And the first round out just drove right into my hip. It was sideways, so it missed my femur by about a quarter of an inch, spun me towards the person that was shooting. The second round hit my belt and uh, traveled down it two or three inches, and the, the copper uh, jacket of the AK-47 round is actually still burned into my belt. Slammed me on the ground, and I went sliding underneath a car, which was not awesome because I was laying on top of my gun, trying to get out from underneath the car as I was watching muzzle flash and hearing rounds impact. And it seemed like it took forever for uh, our guys to shoot back, which probably was about a quarter of a second. Um, and then the target, it, it became almost a mass casualty incident. There was eight Americans that ended up being hurt on that target. We explosively breached on our side of the door. They were making entry on the other side. So there was a gunfight in the hallway that uh, two people were injured by, and then people were injured by the breaching charge. So it was actually, you know, even at the highest level, it was the effects that came from that largely were from the fog of war. People at the apex of what is possible 
and it was a blue on blue or a green on green, whatever you want to call it. So I ended up being one of the least injured people. They were putting guys on helicopters, flying them out of there. Um, they put me on a Bradley fighting vehicle. I basically, as the firefight got kicked off, I got drug around a corner. A buddy of mine cut my pants open to get a look at the injury. I put direct pressure on it with my hands. Got drug out of the courtyard eventually. It got wrapped in Curlex, which is just gauze. And then I got thrown in the back of a Bradley fighting vehicle and uh, driven to the green zone. And that was it. Started, you know, the medical treatment began from there. And then I got flown to Germany, to Launchstuhl, Germany. And then I was there for maybe two days and got myself on a Delta flight and flew home. So you get to Germany and I'm sure you're just... Well, there's three of us in the room. One yeah. guy was shot in the hand, so he immediately went to the bar because he's an asshole. <laughs> he was told not to leave and immediately left. The other guy, has, his arm was just filleted. And, uh, like not coming back? No, he saved it. Nice. And he's actually uh, now is on the CBS show SEAL Team, Tyler Gray. Oh, yeah, yeah. We were on the same target yeah. together. We shared a, a hospital room. And I was sitting there. You know, I was in a lot of pain. There was a lot of neuropathic pain associated with it, but... In comparison to other people, I was fine. So there was nothing they can do for me. They didn't, I still have never broken a bone. I've never had stitches. I've never had surgery. And they basically were like, well, you can wait here for another week until the rotator flight can take you home. And I just called the command. I'm like, I want to get out of here. So I went and bought a Delta ticket, took a taxi to the airport and got on a Delta flight. And uh, the command sent an aircraft to get me in New York. And I got right off the aircraft, right on the air, another aircraft, and made my way home to Virginia Beach. So you're, you're, let's talk about your mindset at this point, because we talked about this on the phone a little bit. You, you go from full tilt mm -hmm. every night, going apex to like that. Can you tell me what's, what's going on in your head, what scenarios you're playing? Well, in the moment, like traveling back home, I didn't know, I didn't know what the future was going to look like. I knew that I was definitely injured and I was going to have some residual effects from it, but I didn't know how bad it was going to be. There was a lot of pain. Um, they were juicing me with as much morphine as they possibly could give me. So my thought process wasn't the best, but it wasn't until later, you know, when I get back and it was earlier on in the war, you know, the, the, the command did the best they could and military medicine did the best they could, but they were underprepared for, I think what was to come. I remember checking into the Portsmouth Naval Hospital I was on a variety of different medications and I was profusely sweating, resting heart rate of about 150, just in an extreme amount of pain. And I checked into the Portsmouth Naval Hospital ER. And I remember this young corpsman, like an E4. And, you know, you're filling out your, your intake paperwork. He says, you know, so what are you here for? And I was like, gunshot wound to the hip. And he looks at me and he puts the pen down and he goes, self-inflicted? That's, that's where we were in the military medicine yeah. system at that point. So I waited in the waiting room for about three hours while they took people in with the flu and sniffles. And then I finally got brought in and they wanted to do an x-ray. And then the doctor came in and said, do you mind if we have all of our interns come in? They've never seen a gunshot wound. That's, that's where we were. So it was in those moments that I started to pretty much come apart and realize that I was going to be on my own when it came to recovering from this, that the doctors didn't know what to do. Because, and the thing is with the neuropathic injury, they said, we don't know. I don't know how many times I have been told by somebody who spent the vast majority of their life in an academic setting learning about medicine who would just shrug their shoulders and be like, maybe. And, you know, a millimeter a day, an inch a month is what nerves generally regrow at. So maybe you'll be able to walk again on your own. Maybe you'll have the usage of your knee. Maybe you'll have the usage of your ankle. Then that's frustrating to hear. 
because I could also give you that answer and I didn't go to medical school. So I was hoping for something a little bit more definitive and instead I found anything but definitive uh, information. So it sucked. Uh, and that command, as all commands do, if you were to describe them as a wheel, that wheel has a direction that they are spinning. And if one spoke comes out, let me just tell you right now, they're not gonna stop the vehicle and stop the wheel. So they keep going and that's a really difficult arrival point as an individual. When you realize that you may wanna be there, you feel like you deserve to be there, you've paid your dues, maybe you even should be there, but you're not going to be because you can't, it sucks. Are you putting that are you playing that? You talked about when you were playing that in your head. You know, at first, you were like, did I screw up? Did I not screw up? Can you talk about that in, in that scenario in your head? How you? Um, yeah, I mean, you spend, you get the rest of your life to figure out whether or not it was a mistake or it was a matter of chance. And where I've landed now is that, you know, if you go to Vegas and you watch somebody on an incredible heater on the craps table and they're just throwing number after number after number, just give it some more time. Just give it some more time and a seven is going to come up. And I know some people who have gotten incredibly lucky and they've been around people that were injured or they, you know, they took a step and then something behind them blew up and other people got injured. And I think in that game, the game of what I used to do for a living, even though it was anything but a game, but to use that analogy, the odds are ever increasingly not in your favor. And I don't think I did anything wrong that night. We we're not after some high-speed sell. We, didn't do, we did not try to develop any new tactic on that target. Um, I think they just heard us going down the alleyway. You know, they heard the noise that we had made and they responded like anybody else would respond. So it just was a matter of, it was my day at the table to include a lot of, the, a lot of other people that got hurt that night. It was their day on the table and that's the way it rolls sometimes. You can only control so much. I mean, the, the, the mistake is you get to a place where you think you can control everything and the reality is you really can't. There's so many things that are outside of control. And then you put another human being on the chessboard and you guys are playing against each other. The only thing I can actually control is me. That person might have the advantage on me one night over the other one. It, it took, did it take you a while to come to that conclusion though? At first, were you beating yourself up at all? At first I didn't know. So I got isolated because again, the wheel, the wheel kept moving. So I only had my first person understanding of what had happened and the other person that got medevac back with me. It wasn't until I was able to talk to a lot of other people that were there that night and literally just say, what the fuck happened? And to get their perspective that I, said, that I came to the realization like, oh, okay, like we didn't do anything crazy. We didn't make any mistakes. It just, it wasn't my night. Your, your view of failure now is, is not, you, you were articulate with like, hey, that's a part of getting to the next yeah. level. Was that, all, was that your view of failure prior? When you're in the teams and you're working up and you're at the, you're at the pinnacle, are you, are you more hard-headed? Are you more accepting? Or wh what is your view there? No, I mean, hard-headed isn't the way to go. We train to failure all the time in the SEAL teams, but I'm trying to think of the best way to articulate this. People think that you should train to failure for the sake of failure, and that is pointless when it comes to actually evolving in whatever skill set that you want to evolve in. Flirting with your threshold of what you're able to control. So you use a shooting analogy. If you're shooting at a target and every single round is dead center in the bullseye, you're nowhere near your threshold. But if you're shooting at the same bullseye and there are bullets sprayed all over the place, like you have a shotgun, you're way past it. So what you wanna find if you wanna to continue to move your threshold is about an 80-20. And that it, maybe it's 90-10, 70-30. It's for people to decide. But most of the bullets are in the middle and then you have a, a zinger. 
There's value in that zinger if you can identify what it is that you did wrong and train towards that. So we would train to failure in the SEAL teams all the time, but not so that we said, hey, this was so hard that we couldn't complete it. It would be for a junior leader. We would overload them with information to the point that they couldn't make a decision on the battlefield and highlight the failure that came from that and allow them to fail because they were not able to prioritize, stop the evolution, train the individual, and try to inoculate them from happening or from that happening again in the future. So training to failure is irrelevant if you don't have an end state associated with it. It's, it's so utterly simple to create a training environment regardless of where you are that is a no-win situation and there's no value for that. So work towards your end state by determining where your threshold is and then bumping that incrementally. And you can do that through systematic and very smart failure. You know, when people, people are like, man, you're doing it. Anybody who's at the top of the game, a lot of times are like, man, I, you don't, a lot of people don't smell the roses until they're already past them. Is it when you're in that situation or you're like, man, I'm here. I'm, this, is where I've, this was my goal. Or is it kind of just you're in it? It was the essence of both. I mean, there's certainly, there's certainly an essence of not realizing how awesome it was because you are caught up in what it was until it's gone, and you're like, oh, damn it, I should have taken a moment to appreciate that. I knew where I was, I knew what we were doing, I understood and appreciated how complex, the, the number of things that have to come together for a target like any of the targets that JSOC level element can go out and prosecute, it's a symphony of chaos that comes together in this like a beautiful, perfect note of music. And you realize that that's happening, but you just don't appreciate all the things that it took to do that. I didn't at least until I was actually out of the military and got a much broader scope and understanding of all the enabling things that were required to make that happen. I don't know if I'm stuck in the station, but I have felt my entire life as if I'm constantly trying to play catch up or keep up with the people that I was surrounded by. The SEAL community was absolutely everything that I thought it was gonna be and then so much more. And the people that I was surrounded by, it, people ask me all the time, like, hey, rate your military career. And I tell them, that's not for me to do. I think you should be judged by your peers. And if people tell you that I suck, then you should go and consider that and you should listen to them. Because um, I don't think I should be able to rate myself. But if you force me to, I would say I was a C, if not a C minus, because I was surrounded by people who were stronger, faster, could jump better, shoot better, make better decisions, better control of their emotion, better control of their emotions and their decision-making process. It was unbelievable. And I never got to a place where I actually even felt worthy of the peers that I was around. They, I knew that I was around such amazing people operating at such a high level. And I was so appreciative of that. And I just tried to absorb as much as I could. And at the end of the day, I just didn't want to be the anchor holding anybody back. And that's I look at everything that I've done in my life, it's like, yeah, average, maybe a little bit below. I'm constantly like, we'll go do jujitsu later today and it's the same thing. I'm like, what is going on here? Like, again, average, a little bit below. But I find so much growth as a person from being in that spot. Um, and then I just seek people who are better and better and better and better. We're, we're talking about, you got shot, you're, yep. you're back home, you, sealed, you see the wheel start, start to spin. Once you realize that wheel is moving, where are you at? What are the scenario playing out? What are your options? Well, the first realization that the wheel was moving, and then the second one was that I was off the bus. It, 
you know, I had hoped that I was going to have a speedy recovery. I ended up having drop foot for almost a year, so essentially hemiplegia of the left side of my body. Um, and I would watch the guys, you know, they came back. The night I got shot, they went on a target the next night. The wheel spins. I actually didn't see any of the guys that I was on target with until months later when they got back from deployment. They took post-deployment leave and then went right back into the training cycle. I went down to the air operations department to try to get some time to recover and rehab, which the command decided they didn't want to give me as much time as they had promised, which is why I had left. And it was, that's where I got to the place of feeling like I was a race car doing 500 miles an hour, dumping the transmission into reverse and watching it just detonate all over the, the racetrack. And it was tough. And that's a place where it's very easy to fall in on yourself and to say, hey, you know what? Like, there's nothing that I can do, so why shouldn't I just take some pills and have a couple cocktails and just enjoy my life? And I played around with that for a little bit, feeling sorry for myself, and got to the realization that that's the exact opposite of who I should be. It's the exact opposite of who I was. And even though the bus for me or the vehicle for me had left at Development Group, I was only, let's see, I got shot in 2005. I came in in 96. I was nine years into my career, and I didn't want to be done. So I researched and found that I could go be a BUDS instructor, and I knew that that would probably be about a two-year block where I would get to rehab, and my goal in that would be to get myself back to a place where I could either continue to deploy with the SEAL community or at least buy me some time where I could reconsider other options in a better headspace. Because for me, my head usually will follow my body. If I am lazy and go a long period of time without being able to work out and sweat and clear my mind, my mental and emotional state will usually follow that. And I knew I needed to find a place where I could rebuild myself physically so I could rebuild myself emotionally and mentally too. And you know, that's what drove me out of that command. The realization that, that that vehicle was gone, it was no longer the right place for me, but that doesn't mean that the community wasn't the right place for me. I just needed some time to reorient and get in another car. Yeah, and before we get into the BUDS uh, instructor thing, um, one of the analogies that you've said, and I've heard you say it a few times, was um, you go from being the guy that's on the news yeah. to watching the news. Can you talk about that analogy and what that means? So that for me was more when I got out of the military and the realization that I had spent so much time, energy, and effort focusing on the sole desire, dream, occupation that I had wanted for my entire life, for essentially as long as I could have remembered, and then realizing that that was gone. And regardless of how much I wanted to still be involved in that, that there was no way that I was going to be able to. And I, and I felt like I had left a community that had impact, and I struggled to realize or understand what I could even do as a person going forward from that and continue to have any impact whatsoever. It's a tough shift between going from something that you think means a lot because you wanted to do it for as long as you can remember to a place where you don't know what it is you want to do anymore. It's a very challenging place. Yeah. So when, you were when we talked on the phone a little bit before, you had said at first, it, what, I don't even know if you said it was a negative connotation you had against, uh, with Bud's instructor, but it wasn't something that was like here for you, right? It and seemed it to me an something. odd place to want to go in the middle of a wartime environment. So we're talking 2006 at this point, five years post 9-11, you know, invasion of uh, Afghanistan kicked off you know, late 01, early 02, Iraq in 03. Not a lot of guys were raising their hand to go to a shore duty billet to train instructors, or not to train instructors, to train students that would then enter into the community 
and go execute combat operations while you're wearing a pair of green shorts and a goofy hat and a UDT SEAL instructor shirt. It was not what I thought I was going to be doing in the middle of a war. Yeah, so you get there and it had more impact than you thought, right? I got there and for one, it was exactly what I needed when it came to rebuilding my body. It gave me the space and the time to do what I knew I needed to, to be able to get back you know, and be able to deploy again, or at least have the physical ability to do so. And with that, it did in, com- did in fact come the mental health aspect, ability to recover. It was just nice to get away and have some more time and space to just relax and recover on a variety of perspectives. And then I realized it was such an interesting time. I spent a lot of time wondering what my instructors thought of me because I looked at these kids, which is what they looked at, like who are volunteering to come into the SEAL community post 9-11. They know what they're getting into. When I went through in 96, 97, it was a concept. It was conceptual. There hadn't been any sustained combat since Vietnam. And I bet you we looked like kids to our instructors as well. And I realized the gravity that you had and the weight that you had and the ability that you had to mold a community going forward because you can select for the right people and apply the curriculum and ensure that those that are not gonna be a fit with the community that you care so much about and the people that you care so much about that you're no longer directly attached to, you're controlling what makes it to them. So you have your hand on the wheel of what the SEAL community actually looks like. And that's an incredibly powerful realization. It's a long-term realization because it's not, it's not like, hey, I'm gonna change the community overnight. But if you get the wrong people going through and then they make it through and then they achieve positions of leadership or get to certain areas, the entire community can deviate because of that. And it was and is the most rewarding tour that I did while I was on active duty. Wow. Was that something that was pivotal into getting to where you are now? I don't know. Uh, I don't know if it's pivotal into getting to where I am now. I think it changed my... It changed my perception of myself. It changed my perception of if I want to have an impact, I need to be the guy with the body armor on going through the threshold of the door. But what's more impactful, being that one individual in that one room or instilling in people core values and morals and an ethos so 50, 60, 70, 200, 300 people can put body armor on and drive the community well beyond anything that you're capable of doing. At the end of the day, what I was able to do on target with body armor on is completely meaningless but the people that I was able to empower and enable to go into that community, they'll change it and shape it going forward. You know, we talked about the mindset and watching it and and how you overcame a lot of that, but let's talk about the adversity. Can you really break down what goes through your head there and and what were some of those most adverse moments as you are experiencing that transition from injury and watching that wheel keep moving? I think the best way to describe it is I was sitting in a bathtub at my house trying to get my foot to work. And I don't, unless you have experienced this, it's hard to describe where, I mean, like, you know what it feels like to, in your head, think, hey, I want to move my hand. And you're thinking that, and you're feeling those things fire in your body, and you're looking at a portion of your body, and it's not moving. And then you just, like, it started to tense up to try to get them to work harder, and it doesn't. And, like, inside of my head, I could hear myself screaming at my foot just, just to move it a millimeter, and it wouldn't, and nothing that I could do could possibly get it to move until one day, I was actually in a bathtub again. I don't know, it's not that I spend a lot of time in a bathtub, but in both of these stories, I was in a bathtub, it's fine. I like moisturized and luxurious skin, it's not a big deal. Um, And it moved just a little bit, 
And for me, seeing that just little bit of movement was so important. And I couldn't hold it. I could, you could have pushed it down with your pinky. A child could have pushed my toe down with my pinky or their pinky. But seeing that, in my, I remember that day specifically, both of them. One where it wouldn't move and then months later where it just did. And I, it was like the weight of the world lifted for me at least a little bit because I knew it was getting better and I didn't know where it was going to go but I knew that I was gonna at least be able to make an improvement off of where I was. But up until that point, the deepest, deepest levels of frustration that I've ever, ever experienced. When you're feeling those levels of frustration, is it just, how does it manifest itself? In stress, in, in reaction, and in- You're just a shitty person. You're short uh, with your temper, you're short with answers, you don't have a lot of tolerance for things that you don't wanna hear. Uh, probably wasn't the best parent that I have ever been. Thankfully, my children were very, very young. I actually only had one son at the time, but my wife was pregnant with our second. Um, it's just not the best expression of who you are as a human being. You're physically in pain. I wasn't sleeping well, so I was mentally and emotionally exhausted, and that just comes out in being an asshole. And then when you saw that movement, you I kinda... was still an asshole, <laughs> but I worked my way out of that. Again, it was, I, I still had a lot of work that I had to do. Being able to lift your toe a little bit. You know, for a year, I would walk down a hallway and I would hear my left foot slap. And I don't think anybody else paid attention to it, but it drove me nuts. Because I was basically swinging my foot so I could lift my toes. Because I could not dorsiflex my foot. And that slap bothered me. And, I, you know, my gait is still a little bit off. And I still have daily reminders. You know, I'll roll my ankle all the time. And there's some stuff in jiu-jitsu that I can't do that I have to guard my ankle with very well. So it has had this lifelong residual you know, impact that I have to constantly bounce up against. And sometimes when I do, like I'll roll my ankle, it makes me super frustrated. I go right back to that moment of being pissed off because I remember where I was and then where I am now and the realization that I can't do everything that I want to do. It's tough, but I can rapidly get back, you know, like, hey, at least I'm not as bad as it used to be. I still am able to do this, 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 and this. I mean, it's just, it's this constant internal battle and narrative. And I think everybody has the choice in that narrative. A lot of people, to include myself, at points in my life have listened to the little devil on my shoulder as opposed to the little angel on my shoulder heading me in the right direction. Yeah, and I think that um, you, uh, I've heard you say this a lot, is like you have to focus on what you can control. Yep. Was there a scenario where you really, where that made that uh, a saying that you say a lot or is that just something that you've... That I think, I mean... Almost everything that I talk about, the podcast being an example, and I can even bring Jocko into this. You know, he writes manuals on leadership. Spoiler alert, he didn't create the things that he's talking about. And he would tell you that specifically. We, he and I both were taught those things from the generation of instructors that taught us. And they were taught those things by the generation of instructors that taught them. It's this knowledge that has been passed along, keeping your world small. Where does that come from? It comes from a chaotic combat environment where you can't worry about what other people are doing, specifically your enemy. You can only control yourself. And that is a lesson that is reinforced in the incredibly realistic and difficult training that we did all the time. And you either can adapt to that and and mold that philosophy into who you are, or the reality is you really struggle actually inside of the SEAL community. And there are people who do really struggle because it's a bell curve. There's people that are amazing and then there are people that suck and then most everybody else is in like that 80% realm. But it just came from a lot of time in those environments and the slow realization over reps, thousands and millions of reps that I don't need to worry about what's going on over here because I have no control over it. And once you can grasp that, 
you can apply it universally throughout the rest of your life. That's good. So we talked, uh, when we were talking on the phone, you said looking back, what seemed so catastrophic at the time really set you in a trajectory yeah. Really positive events. Can you kind of talk about that as we transition to the next thing? Yeah, you know, I think the night that you get shot and laid flat on your back, you're probably not going to sit there and go, you know what, this is going to make me into the person that I want to become. <laughs> you sit there and you're pissed and you're in pain. And, and again, I didn't even know what was going on. I, did, I was not able to talk to the people that filled me in on the rest of what had happened that night for months. So there was a lot of uncertainty and unknowns. But I look at that and what had happened. It got me to a place where I realized I needed to leave development group. And it got me to a place where after I left my tour of duty as a BUDS instructor, I realized towards the tail end, and specifically now was the most impactful period of time that I have had in my life when it comes to my military career. And while I was at BUDS as an instructor, I realized that I wanted to have more of an impact on the military. So I put a commissioning package in, which I was picked up for, which led me to SEAL Team 3. And I ended up working with a ton of guys, like three quarters of the people that I deployed with in 2010 were people that I had put through buds. And I was able to, again, have my finger in the community of, of just driving and molding the clay that is that community through experience, through empowerment, through mentorship. And towards the tail end of that, I went to a training command where I was the operations officer and oversaw all the training that was going on at a, at a high level, not at a day-to-day -day level of what was going on inside of the SEAL community. And throughout that, I also started working for CrossFit and in doing so started public speaking. Why did I start working for CrossFit? Because I was using it as the methodology to recover from getting shot. It got me used to public speaking. Um, it introduced me to Tate, Fle uh, Tate Fletcher, who's the person who introduced me to Joe Rogan, who's the person who told me I should start a podcast. Then when I got out of the military, I was introduced to brands that wanted to support me in the things that I wanted to do. So I started skydiving more recreationally, which led me to base jumping, which led me to my first endorsement and sponsorship deals. All of those things, those if you call that a right-hand turn, all of those right-hand turns can be drawn back to that night on target. And there's just no way that I could have seen that in that night. It's in the rear view mirror now that I look and realize that's probably one of the best things that's ever happened to me. That's good, man. So because of that now, you're out, right? You're, you get out and uh, a lot of these came from, a lot of people stop from what they perceive as failure. Yeah. Right? And, but your view of failure is a little bit different now, right? So can you tell me the importance of failure in life and what that can do. I don't know if I view failure differently. I mean, yeah. it's just falling short of whatever your goal is. I think the definition is what it is. I, if I look back at the aggregate of my life, the grand sum of my successes or failures, I, I would be surprised if it was 50-50. It probably is probably a little bit higher on the failure side of the house. And I think most people are like that. But what I suspect is that when people encounter failure or they see something that they will struggle at, because um, let me, we'll use jujitsu as, as an analogy. You get your ass handed to you every single day. And it's not like some macro failure. It's a micro, you get bested getting to a position or somebody will get a hold of your hand where you wanted to get a hold of your hand. And you'll see people even in jujitsu who then avoid those positions in the future. And what it ends up happening is it stunts their growth. So anytime that people, in my opinion at least, avoid adversity because the outcome may be failure, they are 
stunting the evolution of what they can be as a human being. For me, I like things that are challenging. Base jumping scares the shit out of me, which is why I love it. It's challenging, it's high consequence. Uh, skydiving, less high consequence because you have more time, but it's also extremely challenging. And to really get to a high level, it's based off of failure after failure and trying something and failing and trying something and failing and slowly gaining that experience so you can accomplish things that people don't understand how you're able to do that. Public speaking, the first time you get up and you publicly speak, let me tell you what happens, nothing good. So what do most people do? I don't wanna do that anymore. But if you continue to dive headlong at those things that are challenging you and you have these micro failures and you can work your way through them and you start seeing adversity as a motivation instead of a stumbling block, in my opinion, I don't really think there's anything out there that can stop you. One of the things that was, I hear a t from a ton of dudes like you, right, it is like, and you said it earlier, is being surrounded by people that are better than you. You know, uh, when people talk about what the flag represents to them, when people talk about what their service means to them, is the guy on the right and left, and you just talked about it, like they're all pushing themselves, they're all better. Mm -hmm. You go from that to, I'm with all these regular people. What, do you seek that now? Do you seek people that are, that are pushing you to be better than yourselves and that sense of community of people yeah. that, are, that are high achievers? I mean, I think it should be pointed out that even the people I was surrounded by, they're regular people too. I, I honestly think that if people got to spend like a week in the SEAL community, in the SEAL teams, they probably would leave underwhelmed. It's not, it's not this community of like cyborg, ultra-athletic, ultra-intelligent, individuals, and there are those people for sure, but they're the anomalies even inside of that community that most people would consider to be in and of itself an anomaly. So it's, they're normal people. I think that perhaps they have a greater capacity to just continue to drive headlong through adversity or find ways around it because that's what the community rewards and you're actually not gonna get into the community unless you can use adversity as motivation. That's the point of BUDS, the siphoning and filtering process. But it's tough, and I hear this the most often from guys when they get out. They feel, they struggle because they're used to being around people with that mentality, which is really what it is. Adversity is motivation. It is not something that should stand in your way. Let's just say, in my opinion at least, that is not the message that is portrayed very broadly in our society. And I wish it would be, because I think it would be better. But you can surround yourself with people who are better than you or more interesting than you or smarter than you or more experienced than you in any avenue that you wanna go down. Podcasting for an example. I'm very lucky because I know Joe Rogan. Um, I solicit advice for him and try to spend as much time around him listening, watching and taking notes because he's where I wanna be. Jiu Jitsu. You go in on your first day and it's a foreign language. You can't even put together an alphabet, let alone a word, let alone a sentence and you look at what those people are able to do, and the first thing that you have to do if you wanna get into that, you know, the paradigm of learning a new language is you have to get out of your own way and realize that you're gonna fail, and that it's gonna take you a month to learn one of the letters, and then it's gonna take you a year to be able to put a word together, and it's gonna take you 10 years to be able to put it together a sentence, let alone a paragraph. But there's value in doing that, and you could do that through music if you wanted to. You could do it through production if you want to. You just seek out people who are in a station or at a place where you aspire to be, you go and you ask questions and you listen. And then the most important step in that is you have to do the work. So now, right, you, you've, you've got these 
so many life experiences and so many different things that have steered you to where you are. Um, can you talk about what you view as your purpose now and what do you do to kind of feed that? That's a good one. I don't know. I don't know what my purpose is. Um, I don't know if I would have been able to articulate what I thought my purpose was even when I was in the military. I definitely, as I became a father, my purpose for me personally shifted towards, I didn't want to leave something behind that my kids would potentially have to finish. And whether or not that was a success or failure is for the history books to judge. I think it's trending a little bit more towards a failure, at least on my own personal goals or aspirations when it came to that. But I just want to make the world a better place than the world that I came into. I would like to make a difference in a, in a, in a positive direction. And I don't know what that looks like. I don't have a definition for that or an avenue for that. But I just try to be the best example of being a person that I can be and do the right thing as often as I can. And I'm not perfect on either of those, but that's it. I mean, I just, I'd like to leave a mark and I'd like the mark to be in a positive direction. That's good. So speaking of that, you know, uh, you're gonna, you're working with two LE guys today, right? Mm -hmm. And you do that on a, on a regular yep. basis. Why do you want to take these experiences that you have and give back to that community? And, and Specifically what it, the law enforcement yeah, one? Yeah. I think law enforcement is a vastly misunderstood job and it's easy, much like the military is in many respects to sit back in Monday morning quarterback. The reality is the number of people who will ever pull a vehicle over and actually walk up to it with the realization that the people in that vehicle may intend or desire to do bodily harm slash kill you, almost nobody has experienced that. Um, the number of people that are willing to go to the most dangerous portions of the world, into the most dangerous town, to find the most dangerous person in their house and to go into their bedroom and fucking kill them is very, very low. And it's easy to sit back and Monday morning quarterback. Why don't you do it this way? Why don't you do it that way? I understand, even though I was not a law enforcement officer, the complexities of operating in a tactical environment. You have not enough information most of the time, and you certainly don't have enough time to make the most informed decision that you would like to. So I give them the benefit of the doubt, and I will give them every ounce of my experience, and I don't, I'm not gonna say wisdom because I don't think that I have any, but every opportunity that I can in every way that I can to make that community better, to move them farther down the road, to help them evolve, because we all benefit from that. And because we operated in a similar environment, obviously their world is much different than the world that I operated in, there are some similarities, and it just, I think it gives me a better understanding of the challenges of their job. So likely a better understanding of the things that I can do to try to help them in the execution of their job, occupation, profession. Great. Um, so now I'll ask it on a broad scale, right? So that was Ellie. You're doing so many things and you share through so many different routes, right? From public speaking to podcasting to doing mm -hmm. stuff like this. Even when we called you originally, talked to you about this, you're like, dude, if it's not Something that's going to make impact. I don't care. Yeah. I, I, why? Why and what do you want to instill? I just don't think people should withhold information. It's, I mean, on a, on a lot of levels, I think human beings are a very complex species. But at the same time, it's not that hard. You know, communicate openly and freely. Best practices, they pretty much always, most often or always float to the top. And if you look at what it is that I used to do, it was an economy of tactics and ideas and equipment. And we filtered through all of that BS and we went with what worked. 
And it was our job to push that information as far and as wide as possible so it would make other people better at their job, it would make them safer, hopefully help them make a better decision. Why not pass that as, as far and wide? I mean, there's, people look at the military as this inspirational and aspirational community. And there are aspects of military service that are, of course, both of those things. But not everything in the military is applicable to the civilian world. But the things that are, why would we not spread that as far and as wide as possible to strengthen individuals that can then hopefully strengthen their community, which can then hopefully strengthen the country. It's, to me, it seems utterly ridiculous to not be that person that's trying to help out as much as possible and spread that knowledge because it was passed on to me from the generation before me. Why would I withhold that from other people? So we already hit on this a little bit, but we talked about prior, what your view of failure was when you were first started when you, uh, and, and even, even your, your take on what no fail means now. But, what does, um, what's your take on failure now, just in general? My take on failure in general, I still think it's essential. Having said that, failure to improve yourself as a human being can, occurs in a controlled environment. I'm not saying that people should go out and haphazardly fail. They need to have a thoughtful and mindful process towards where they want to be, working their way backwards to put themselves on a trajectory for that. Train at your threshold, fail often. The goal is in the real world, in environments that count, you never fail. And the reason that you don't fail is because you have encountered and defeated the adversity along the way. So to get to a place where you're not going to fail, you have to fail a lot and you have to fail often and it has to hurt and it has to leave a mark. So with that said, how do you manufacture those moments, right? Like create that and, and, and build that into your system. So to me, that's one of the easiest answers because everybody, if you were to ask them to write down five things that you're scared of, you know, how, how many times have you heard that most people are more afraid of public speaking than death? What do you think they should dive headlong into? Public speaking. If you could list five things for me that you are scared of, I can give you five things that you will have an immense amount of growth as a human being if you dive headlong into. It's really that simple. We all have things that we know we want to avoid because we want to tailor what we do to our strengths and avoid our weaknesses. And if you want to develop yourself into a no-fail mindset and you want to get into situations where you're not worried about failure, it doesn't come from focusing on your strengths. It comes from focusing on your weaknesses. I want to go back to, um, this is kind of a broad question here. and. Uh, when you talk about failure, gear is a huge thing, right? Mm -hmm. And, and uh, why is it important to have quality gear no matter what you're doing? I mean, we're talking about podcasting. For sure. And like like yeah. anything. Why is, it, why is gear important? Well, again, it goes back to control what you can, and you have to surrender control to the things that you can't. You can absolutely control yourself, but it has to go your thought process needs to go beyond that. You can't say, well, I've done everything that I can do personally, so let me get the lowest cost, most cheaply manufactured piece of equipment, and then when that fails, it's like, eh, that's not really my fault. No, control the variables that you can. In the environments that I used to work in, failure of equipment could terminate in failure of life. And if you're in that world or peripheral to that world or proximal to that world at all, you have to spend an inordinate amount of time working your way through equipment. And equipment, just like human beings, it has a threshold. Do me a favor and find that threshold in the training environment as opposed to a real world environment. Because if you can do that and find it in the training environment, 
what you'll realize is maybe I need another piece of gear because the threshold of this gear is nowhere near the threshold of what I'm capable of. And you should be symbiotically climbing up the ladder of capability. You should never be hindered by your equipment. If you are, you're not putting enough time, energy, and effort into finding the right gear. That's great. Um, how important is it to pass on lessons of failure as you continue to build a path of impact? How important is it to pass on lessons of failure? I mean, is there really any value in talking about success? Does anybody really learn anything about a path that they can go down if you only tell them about the things that you did right? Because all you'll do if you do that is get them to not pay attention to the potential pitfalls. I would say the most important thing and the most impactful thing that you can do is be completely open and blatantly honest about your mistakes and failures so that people can learn and then hopefully avoid them. Okay, so one of the analogies that we're gonna do here is like taking a jump, taking a leap, right? Like mm -hmm. you've done that in so many different ways. Um, uh, you always kind of take a leap of faith. You take a leap literally off of a cliff, right? Yep. So using that analogy of just jumping, taking that leap, can you kind of break down um, that approach to life and that approach to um, just making things happen? This is where YouTube kills people and gets them to think about things improperly. You know, a base jumping video will generally start five to 10 seconds before somebody's feet leaves the edge of the cliff. And it ends after their parachute opens or right when their feet touches the ground. And if you think that that is all that base jumping is, and you watch that and you think, oh, okay, I just need to go jump for a little bit and I'm gonna be prepared, you're setting yourself up for disaster. That's the sexy highlight reel that could maybe help you get a sponsor on YouTube. But the amount of risk assessment and mitigation that I have been involved with, taught first in the military, actually, you know what, probably even taught before that on a construction site with my dad, to identify hazards and put into place mitigating effects. And then you go into the mission planning cycle in the military. You know, what's on every operational template that you submit for approval, it has on the first slide the risk associated with the operation. How do you think we get that risk? We analyze it, we assess it, and then we put in mitigating factors. I do exactly the same thing with everything that I do in my life, but it's really hard to show that on YouTube. So there are no blind leaps for me. I take the same process when it comes to putting together the, you know, the military planning process. I use that in the decisions that I make throughout my life, whether it be podcasting, whether it be jujitsu, whether it be jumping off a cliff like you're saying. There's no accidents. It's just really, really hard to show all the steps that goes into the moment right before you hit record on a GoPro. Let's talk about the importance of, you know, you do a lot of high stakes things. Mm -hmm. Preparedness, being ready, right? Like, how important is it to stay sharp? I think it depends on what it is that you're doing. You know, the podcast helps stay sharp for anything that is audio related or video related or talking and being in front of a camera. But how do you get comfortable being in front of a camera? It's rhetorical. You spend time in front of a camera. How do you get comfortable talking? You spend time talking. Currency, you know, if you want to, and this might be a little bit more specialized, but if people want to get really good at one thing, the answer and how to get good at that one thing is right there in front of you. You need to spend time doing it. And every skill that I possessed, that I've ever possessed, is much like fitness. If you work out really hard, your fitness level is going to increase, but what happens as soon as you stop working out, you plateau and it starts going down. So to truly be a master of your craft, you have to stay involved in it. 
And if you really wanna be a master of your craft and you wanna be really good at one thing, you're gonna to have to exclude some other things along the way, and that's totally fine, unless you don't realize that you are excluding those other things and that's where you're gonna end up encountering essentially accidental failure. Hey guys, welcome to the Ironclad Hot Wash segment where we break down uh, the pod, the conversation we had with our, our guest, and give you the key takeaways. So Jeremy, the conversation with Andy Stumpf was extremely unique. He's a, a really cool guy. You've known him for a while, and we've worked together f with him for some time. Um, just a tier one dude across the board in every aspect of his life. Yeah, I think uh, this, and th you know, this whole thing kind of shows you a look at these long form conversations that are very guided and less organic to get to these short form pieces. So we go into these things knowing we need to get this two minutes and we're searching for these two minutes. A guy like Andy, it just comes. You don't, you, you don't really need to push very hard. And, and that could have easily been, instead of a three, three and a half minute piece for a no fail, it could have easily been a 10, 20 minute piece. So yeah, tier one dude. Great stories, great life lessons, and great outlook on failure. What was, so I was captivated by his story. Um, it was kind of, you know, throughout the conversation that you had with him, it would be hard not to just be hanging on every word, especially when he talks about some of his experience in the teams, um, his, uh, the transition that he had from being operating into a situation where there was a uh, a recovery, right? Right from being um, from being shot. Yeah. Um, what was what do you think that experience kind of taught you as you were like having that conversation with him? Yeah, I, I think one of the cool things about working with Andy was we did a pre-interview with him, two pre-interviews with him before we even got out there, and then we did this. And I've known him for a while, even prior to this, and. One thing he says is that's consistent is that all of these, what you could call failures, yeah. right, have led to where he is today. Yeah. So uh, him getting shot could be look at like like the worst thing has ever happened to him. But if it wasn't for that, he would have never had to get back and become a buds instructor. Right. And would, if he wouldn't have done that, he would have never fallen in love with that type of work yeah. and, and investing into these young folks and teaching and speaking. <clears throat> and then he became he started speaking mm -hmm. and, and being because he enjoyed it so much and started speaking and becoming and doing those types of leadership things. And while all the while he started rolling and doing jujitsu and he was injured and he was coming uh, overcoming these, this injury and as he's doing jujitsu and speaking, he meets other people and he met, he ends up meeting Rogan and Rogan says, Hey, you should do a podcast. Mm -hmm. And he starts doing a podcast and then that blows up. Yeah. And then, so it's these things that what look like failures to most people are just little curves in the road that have kind of brought him to where he is. So that was one of the big takeaways that I got from the whole thing is his perspective on what failure really means and, and how you can really use it for something good yeah one of the things i thought was really interesting and this is this is something that i think can be a takeaway and applied anyone can use this as an app 
something that they apply to their own situation in life, whether it's at work or in family, uh, or in their home life, rather. And that is, he talked about, as he evolved through the um, special operations community in his different roles, the foundational elements that developed um, before he went um, to his you know, final group, that there were foundational elements that he had to learn, and it taught him to be a well-rounded individual um, before he was able to go to that next tier one level and become a folk, have a specific area of focus. Without those foundational elements, he might not have ever appreciated that tier one level of focus that he was able to get because it created an, a, a little bit of a confidence, I'm sure, and it does this for every, anyone who's mastered the foundational elements and then been allowed to create a specialty. Those foundational elements create confidence so that you can then go and master something specific, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I thought uh, that was pretty cool. Yeah, the way that he's able to articulate these things, you can tell he's gifted at speaking. You can yeah, tell he does sure. it a lot. You can tell he does a lot of podcasts. Very articulate guy. And, uh, you know, I recommend even giving it a re-listen and make sure you watch the No Fail episode uh, with him because it should leave you wanting to go out there and get mm -hmm. after it. Listen, everybody, thanks for listening. Make sure you comment, subscribe, ask questions. If you want to see anybody else on our podcast, let us know. We'll book them. We'll hunt them down. We'll get them. Um, in the meantime, subscribe, like, listen, comment. See you soon.